in the past, uh, disclosures would come to the patent committee and then all these folks, these engineers would decide, well, is this worthy of patenting? Yes, no. If no, it would fall on the cutting room floor. And now I think there's a sensitivity to the value of that other information. Some secrets can never be shared. Jim Pooley ought to know. He's the world's foremost expert on trade secrets, a mysterious area of the law that has been the focus of employer disputes. A successful Silicon Valley trial lawyer, Pooley served for five years as Deputy Director General of the World IP Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. His commentary pieces on the controversial COVID vaccine patent waiver and other topics have appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Pooley is a member of the Intellectual Property Hall of Fame, serves on the advisory board of the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding, and is an ardent supporter of intellectual property education. His most recent book is Secrets, Managing Information Assets in the Age of Cyber Espionage. Jim joins us today from his office near Stanford University. Good morning, Jim. Welcome to Understanding IP Matters. Good morning, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Jim, trade secrets sound racy. For those less familiar with them, and even for those who are, what are trade secrets and what makes them important? Trade secrets basically are anything you don't want the competition to know. And that's because they're asset, information assets that are the kinds of things that drive businesses these days. And we've all heard many times about how the asset base of modern corporations has shifted to the intangible over the last generation. And those intangible assets are mostly about data. They're increasingly about data. Even companies that never dreamed that they would be focused on something as flimsy as data assets instead of railroad cars and buildings find that their value primarily and and in some cases their their competitive survival depends on keeping control over the information that gives them a competitive edge and that's what trade secrets is all about Jim, how did you come to trade secrets? I mean, what was your journey? Uh, you start out as a, as a regular lawyer, not a patent attorney, correct? That's correct. I grew up and went to school on the East Coast, but uh, really wanted to come to California. And um, after my first year in law school, I made applications to virtually every firm in California that had eight or more lawyers, um, which was over 200 firms at the time to try to get a summer internship and for the summer of 1972, which was exactly 50 years ago. Anyway, from that process, I, I got an offer from this little 11-lawyer firm in a place I'd hardly ever heard of called Palo Alto. And so I thought, well, okay, it's not San Francisco, it's not Los Angeles, but uh, that's okay. They have a nice university there. It must be a good town. <laughs> and so I was the first summer um, associate, if you would, we didn't call it that then for what became Wilson Sonsini. Hmm. And, and one of our clients the year before had coined the term Silicon Valley. So there I was, uh, all I wanted to do was go to trial and, you know, be in the courtroom. That, that was what interested me. But many of the cases, uh, more than any other single kind of case 
back then was about trade secrets because the valley was just starting to explode and people would leave one place and start to then start a company at another or join another competitor and you know as you pointed out uh, before california uh, allows that sort of thing and and the only protection that companies have if they think that these people are using something they shouldn't is to file a lawsuit so i ended up doing more and more of that um, over time and they're um, back then believe it or not there weren't that many lawyers in palo alto so i <laughs> didn't have much competition so popular examples of trade secrets would be the formula for kentucky fried chicken the famous one uh, coca-cola a formula for that, uh, but also a technique that enables, say, Apple, an Apple iPhone processor to be produced faster and more reliably. Right. There's a lot of trade secret information that finds itself um, part of process technology. In other words, just tweaking some things so that they work a little bit better. We refer to that generally as know-how and it fills a lot of the trade secret space now no does know-how differ from trade secrets or are they basically the same know-how is just a type of trade secret that is sometimes more challenging to make explicit than something like for example a formula or an algorithm you can license know-how or technology licensing etc but you can't really license a trade secret or you shouldn't you can license a trade secret. You mm. just need to do it in a way that allows you to keep control over it because you've put limitations on uh, what the person, the licensee, can do with it. Mm -hmm. Trade secrets differ from patents, but are employed often in conjunction with them. Uh, can they actually make patents more valuable? I think they can, and particularly these days, since the American Vents Act, where we changed the law on claiming trade secrets that are related to patents, we used to have this thing that those of us who litigated patents uh, always dreaded, which was the best mode issue. That is, you were always supposed to, as part of your patent application, expose and explain the best mode for implementing your invention and that meant that a lot of people gave away trade secrets because they were worried that their patents would become unenforceable they would not be valid if they didn't uh, follow that rule and so uh, with that change there's been a lot more focus on holding on to related trade secrets which in turn can make the patents themselves the related patents more valuable patents are published by the u.s uh, patent and trademark office for all to see in exchange for a limited period of exclusivity but trade secrets cannot be disclosed uh, or very limitedly if at all how is that not negative for innovation and for society how is that siloing of the information not innovative well indeed bruce this is this is one of those things that is counterintuitive but really deeply important and true mm -hmm. and it is that allowing companies to control access to their information with enforceable relationships of confidentiality actually leads to more dissemination of knowledge because otherwise companies would hoard 
the data that they have, and they wouldn't be sharing it because they'd be too nervous. Mm -hmm. Allowing systems to enforce promises of confidentiality means that we're able to have collab worldwide collaborations and other sharing that that uh, that wouldn't happen. Um, but this is the, this is a challenge for people. Make sure that people understand that it actually does enhance innovation and the uh, sharing of data. When an employee of, say, a Silicon Valley tech company wants to leave and form his or her own business, uh, will a trade secret agreement prevent them? Not in California, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> California took a, a decidedly different path than the rest of the country many years ago by deciding that it was not going to enforce non-compete covenants. And so in Calif within California, anyone who leaves a job can go do whatever they want, uh, so long as they respect the specific trade secrets of their former employer. And that means the path is wide open for people to leave and start new, new companies. In fact, there's some people that think that that special rule in California is largely responsible for Silicon Valley. So how does an employer uh kind of figure out how much information to share with employees who may or may not continue to be employees and how much not to? How do they balance that? Is there a strategy or is there, is it depend on the organization? Both of those things are true. There is a strategy and it very much depends on the organization because all data assets are unique to mm -hmm. one company and the next. Um, they need to understand what they have and then they need to understand what is the risk environment that that information lives in and you know how likely is it that that information might uh, exfiltrate somewhere else uh, somebody might do something with it they're not supposed to and then they think about ways normal management ways to limit access to manage people to understand that they know uh, what to, to be sure that they understand uh, what it is that they're supposed to be doing to protect it. And so that becomes a strategic program for any company that depends on data. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure trade secrets are covered under employment agreements uh, and such. They're almost always mentioned uh, mm -hmm. these days as something, a responsibility of the employee. And, and yet studies consistently show that the greatest amount of loss and contamination that happens with information transfer happens through insiders. It doesn't come from hacking. Mm -hmm. It comes from, and it doesn't come from employees who are malicious. Mm -hmm. It comes from misunderstanding and a lack of sufficient communication and training. And that's really actually good news for most businesses because that's the easiest and cheapest way to protect your data. Mm -hmm. So say a Pfizer's COVID vaccine may be covered by a patent, which is public record, but the knowledge of how to produce the vaccine reliably or build a manufacturing plant for it is likely held as a trade secret. Yes, all of those manufacturing steps uh, consist of the know-how that you have to have in order to produce a successful vaccine that can be transported and stored and so forth. These steps are uh, complicated and um, it takes 
usually when there is a voluntary transfer of this kind of information from one company to another, it can take months. And people who uh, are important to the production at the first company have to basically move to the other for a while to help people understand how to turn the knobs and all the little tricks that are needed in order to get through these hundreds of steps to make a vaccine, for example. And that's why this was such a frustrating experience to see the diplomats get together and assume that, uh, oh, we'll just, uh, we can force people to move that information from one place to another. It just doesn't work that way. Right. And the patents, of course, are, are published. They're public uh, record. So it's not a matter of not understanding what's in the patent, but it's a matter of understanding the trade secrets around it. That's right. And, and I can understand the frustration. During the time that I was in Geneva, I mean, many times, representatives from developing countries would come to me and say, look, we, we think this is great that we have all this patent data out there revealing all these wonderful innovations, and we have the right to use this if we want in our country, but we can't build the plant without the know-how. And how do we get that here? And the, you know, the difficult conversation revolves around the fact that this is private property and governments can control patents they don't as easily control trade secrets. So this is this is an area that where we we have to work on the uh, on understanding a little bit more. China has been stealing U.S. intellectual property, including trade secrets, for decades. How is this happening, and what can be done to stop it? Well, a little historical context is helpful here. I mean, you know, we've we've encouraged uh, China to sort of come up the um, you know, the path of being a, uh, you know, member of the global business community and participating in the innovation economy. <clears throat> and they've accepted the invitation. And, and much like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan before them, uh, China has done a lot of duplicating and taking information from other places on the way to developing their own resources for um, innovation themselves. And so it's, um, it has been frustrating, and I think China uh, recognizes it. And certainly at a, at a high level, there's been a lot of progress, but the, the problems remain, certainly in enforcing intellectual property rights in China, much more difficult than doing it here. How can uh, managers uh, discuss and catalog uh, what could be their most valuable assets? Uh, if you talk about uh, trade secrets too openly, you, you're going to undermine them. So how do they organize them in a way that doesn't violate them? That's a really good question, Bruce. And you're right. The one way not to do this is to call an all-hands meeting of everybody in the company. But what I've found works the best is getting together in one room to the extent you can. Mm -hmm. The heads of the various business units, as well as the heads of functional areas like HR and, and information security and legal, and everybody gets in and, and we brainstorm a bit about what are the crown jewels that need the most um, specific attention and what are the kinds of risks that they face in the 
with the business model that the company has, how much sharing goes on with partners outside, et cetera, et cetera. That meeting will be, or a series of meetings, will be the beginning of understanding what we have. And then there's a process usually of writing all of this down in a way that will help the company manage access in a, in a dynamic environment. New secrets will emerge, old ones will fall away, new risks will come up, and the program will be able to adapt. There are companies, Jim, that uh, have very sophisticated trademark and patent strategies and systems uh, for managing them in place. But uh, very often, without mentioning any names, uh, companies have little or nothing with regard to trade secrets. Uh, why is that? Why do you think that exists? One reason, Bruce, is what we talked about earlier. That is that it used to be that trade secrets were a problem and annoyance for people in the patent space. And their solution to it was, well, let's just throw all the information we can into the patent application so that we don't risk invalidity of the patent. Uh, it was, it's also because for patent lawyers, the whole area of trade secrets seem, as you said at the top here, very mysterious. Unlike the other forms of intellectual property, they, they haven't been historically defined by federal statutes. They don't have bright edges and clear lines. It's all very fuzzy. It depends on state law. You end up having to go to state court to enforce them, or at least you used to. And so there was always this, let's, let's push this over here and uh, we'll, we'll figure it out later kind of approach. That has changed dramatically at uh, most large companies in recent years. Thomas Edison famously said, or infamously said, I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that don't work. You have written that negative know-how is a trade secret. How is that valued and monetized? Most uh, obviously, it's in R&D. It's mm -hmm. the effort that we put into testing hypotheses through experimentation and research. And all of the data that we collect in that, in that process stands behind and informs the ultimate technology that we discover that is the most optimal mm -hmm. for whatever it is that we're trying to do. And, and so monetizing all of that data means um, trying to get to a point where it has led you to the thing that works. Uh, that's the most obvious thing. But along the way, and then afterwards, <clears throat> you need to uh, protect access to that body of experimental data because somebody else getting access to it would be able to leapfrog ahead mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. put in not just the investment, but also uh, they would be able to avoid the risk that you took in in uh, pursuing this path that uh, that could have just completely failed, as, for example, uh, many, um, many small molecule drugs do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The era of the single uh, employer for 40 years is long gone, especially in, in the tech world, uh, with more managers and researchers moving to new jobs at competitors or creating new companies of their own. What advice do you have for businesses? What I try to tell people 
these days in general about uh, being sure that they're doing what they're supposed to with these these assets is engage in what in something that a process that you're already very familiar with, which is um, risk management. You look at your operations. And as we've said before, you identify what really matters. You see where the risks are. And you will conclude that a lot of those risks have to do with people coming in and going out of the organization. And then it becomes a matter of simply sensible uh, people management to ensure that everybody who touches this sensitive information knows that it is sensitive. And they also know what their responsibilities are to keep outsiders from having access to it and to respect it when they leave with their toolkit of skills, but with without taking that uh, specific data. That is a that's a people management issue, and uh, there's a special way of, of approaching it, but it's really classical. Now, the inverse of that is, or, or the uh, converse, if you will, uh, employees who want to leave, but they want to leave and start their own business. They don't want to violate the law or, or disrespect their uh, previous employers. How do they create new businesses without violating uh, previous agreements? Well, they start, and this is what I usually um, begin with when I'm trying to counsel people who are doing that. They start with the fundamental idea, you can only have one employer at a time. Uh, you can only be uh, focused uh, on, on one loyalty at a time. So while you can dream and while you can plan about what the future holds, you can't actually start doing it until you have severed the old relationship. And you have to be very respectful about that. People, um, you know, one of the things I did early in my career when I handled all sorts of courtroom uh, dramas was divorce cases. Hmm. And I've found that uh, many of the same uh, emotions uh, that come up in divorces, uh, you know, abandonment, uh, jealousy, treachery, uh, these things are part of the fabric of trade secret disputes too. And so the people who are planning to leave and start something really need to understand and sort of channel the emotions of, the, of their management that they're leaving so that they don't do something that uh, inappropriately enrages them and causes um, people to assume things that may not be true. So a lot of cooperation and openness is really the best way to ensure that uh, people are disappointed when you leave, but they're not going to uh, sue you. Where do you see trade secrets headed in the next decade or so? I see trade secrets becoming more and more um, part of an organized, formal proce process of management. We, we've seen a big change in recent years with the what used to be called uh, always the, the patent committee becoming the innovation committee, mm -hmm. where in the past, uh, disclosures would come to the patent committee and 
then all these folks, these engineers would decide, well, is this worthy of patenting? Yes, no. If no, it would fall on the cutting room floor. And now I think there's a sensitivity to the value of that other information. And now the process is, well, let's figure out what we're going to patent and how. And with the stuff that we're not patenting, let's make sure that there's a process in place to manage that, to ensure that we preserve its value through secrecy and that somebody is in charge of monetizing this, of making sure that it increases enterprise value. And that focus on a new kind of management of these assets is where I see, uh, where I see the future of trade secrets. Thank you for, for joining us today. It was very uh, enlightening discussion of trade secrets, an area that uh, even sophisticated intellectual property people don't seem to know as much about as they could. So this was very uh, helpful uh, to us and I'm sure to our listeners. Well, thanks very much, Bruce. This has been a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, the host of Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at how IP rights enable creators and businesses to achieve and how they impact lives. Listeners who followed season one, thank you. Remember that all Understanding IP Matters episodes are available wherever you stream podcasts. We encourage your comments and welcome suggestions for topics and guests. Please contact us at explore at understandingip.org. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and its subscribers. To hear other episodes, visit understandingip.org. Follow CIPU on Twitter at Center for IP and on LinkedIn. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower and Aaron Devereaux at Nonsensible Productions. Content conveyed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect the views of CIPU or its affiliates. Mm-hmm.